you need these institutions to uh, channel democratic currents in positive directions and prevent democracies from moving into in, in, into these kind of more demagogic directions and appealing to the worst impulses of the people and, 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 and all of this. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservice for the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled moderate majority of Americans drawing upon history, biography, and current events. I'm delighted to be joined today by Rob Saldeen. Rob is a professor of political science at the University of Montana. He's director of the Mansfield Ethics and Public Affairs Program at Montana and a senior fellow of the Niskanen Center. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Jeff. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. Rob, I want to work our way around to talking about your recent book with Niskanen Center senior fellow Steve Tellis called Never Trump, The Revolt of the Conservative Elites, which you published with Oxford University Press last year. Uh, but I also want to talk about your recent essay, Gone Country, Why Democrats Need to Play in Rural America and How They Can Do It Again, which you co-authored with Cal Munis of Johns Hopkins uh, and which appeared on the Niskanen website in March of this year. Uh, before we get there, though, can you tell me something about where you grew up and how you came to be a professor of political science? Yeah, yeah, sure, Jeff. I grew up in, in Boise, Idaho, and went back east to uh, Davidson College outside Charlotte uh, for, for college. And it was there that uh, right off the bat, I, I uh, got interested in political science. I had two fantastic teachers at Davidson that, that, that stood out to me. And one was Peter Arnsdorf, who was uh, a student of Alan Bloom's and um, took a, a number of political philosophy courses with, uh, with Peter. And, you know, those, those were really kind of pivotal classes for me um, in just kind of coming to understand liberal democracy better, uh, it, its, its weaknesses, its strengths, um, the alternatives to it. And then I also uh, was always really drawn towards just American politics, too. And I, I, I had another teacher, Tom Kazee at Davidson, who was uh, more of a, a kind of meat and potatoes, American politics, elections, public policy kind of stuff. And so those were always the areas that I was most drawn towards. And, you know, I, I guess it was probably about midway through Davidson where it first struck me that, that being a professor would be a pretty good gig. You know, I was, I was not eager at the idea of leaving college. I, I, I thought it was a pretty good deal. You, you know, take these interesting classes and read and write and talk to interesting people. And it occurred to me, you know, well, maybe I could continue this kind of life as a, as a professor. And so uh, from Davidson, I went on to the University of Virginia where I did uh, my PhD and was then uh, fortunate, um, in, in my mind at least, to uh, be able to get back to the West. I got the job at the University of Montana and, um, you know, I've, I've been in Missoula now for, uh, you know, with a, with, with a couple periods of leave for, uh, for 13 years now, I think. Okay, terrific. Um, and did you start with sort of a focus on uh, foreign policy or how did your exact uh, academic focus evolve? Well, I, I chose University of Virginia largely because I was interested in kind of the more historical oriented wing of political science. And um, that, that's, that's uh, known as American political development in, in kind of political science and history circles. And it's still very much political science in the sense that it is trying to understand what's going on now. 
but it also suggests that to understand the contemporary, you have to have some real knowledge of the past because we're very rarely in a position of starting from scratch, right? So, uh, you know, a, a great example of this, I think, is, um, you know, thinking about health policy, which is an, an interest of mine, and, you know, thinking about the Obama reform. And, you know, if, if you just look at our healthcare system, it's, it's, it's rather insane. Nobody would ever propose, oh, I, I have a great idea for a healthcare system and implement the one we have, right? You know, a lot of people look at it as, as, and are kind of stunned and don't understand it. Well, if, if, you, if you approach it from a historical perspective, you, you can understand it much better and also understand why Obama and his allies at the time chose to basically work within the confines of the system as it was, uh, rather than start from scratch and do a total overhaul because there are so many entrenched interests in all of this. And so it, it's that kind of you know, historically oriented political science that, that, that I was drawn toward and that UVA was really uh, a leading player in. It's, it's definitely, I, I wouldn't say it's the, 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 the mainstream or anywhere close to the mainstream of uh, people who study American politics, but it's what I was drawn towards. And, and, and I think it, it offers real insights that um, a lot of political science sometimes overlooks. Um, and so I was, I was also uh, especially drawn towards uh, some of the professors who were at UVA at the time, Jim Caesar, who was kind of on the dividing line between American politics and political philosophy. And then also uh, uh, Sid Milkus, who was a very, very historically oriented scholar and, and teacher. And um, so, so that was a great fit. The great Martha Durthick was, was also at uh, Virginia when I was there. She had just retired a year or two before, but she was still a significant presence in, in Charlottesville. And I, uh, I got to know her a bit during my time there. And, uh, you know, in terms of like, like my, my, my original dissertation project was uh, not, not exactly uh, situated in foreign affairs, but it was looking at um, something that students of American politics usually don't look at, and that is the, the influence of international affairs on domestic politics. And so I, so I did that through a number of case studies, looking at the big hot wars that the United States had been involved in, starting with the Spanish-American War up through Vietnam and, and so in, in, in a sense, that did give me a little bit of a foot in uh, the, the, the foreign policy world. But, but ultimately, I was more interested in looking at how these foreign engagements shaped politics within the United States. And that led to your first book, War, the American State and Politics Since 1898. Right. Uh, but you mentioned uh, your interest in healthcare, and that was largely the focus of your second book, When Bad Policy Makes Good Politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, you know, I had the uh, good fortune to, to land a spot in this remarkable fellowship program through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It, it was based in Harvard and uh, the University of Michigan and Cal Berkeley, and there were cohorts in each of these. And so I, I, I was at the Harvard site and got to spend two years there. And, and one of the unique features of that program was it took people who didn't necessarily have a background in health policy and the the idea they had was that well we can we can bring in these people and it wasn't just political scientists it was also economists and sociologists and um, the idea was we we can bring in these social scientists and and uh, uh, who have a kind of toolbox that they've uh, developed and have them take those skills and apply it to health policy and you know I'm I'm actually 
not familiar with any other program quite like that, that takes people without any real knowledge or background or experience in, in a policy area and says, well, we, we, we can get you up to speed on, you know, Medicare and Medicaid and all this stuff. But, you know, you, you, you all have a, a unique angle that you can bring to it. And um, so, so that's, that's where I, I, I got a, uh, a foothold in, into the health policy world. And um, right, Jeff, that was the, the focus of my second book, which was about this uh, ill-fated piece of the Affordable Care Act that uh, attempted to address a, a significant challenge that we have in, with, with long-term care. And in a nutshell, we, you know, we're an aging society. We have a lot more people who are going to be requiring um, assistance in, in the final years and months of their lives, and, and we're not very well situated uh, to handle the, that, that challenge. And um, there was this piece within the Affordable Care Act that uh, attempted to make some progress in, in that area, set up a national program, but it was uh, it was a. Is this the Class Act you're referring to? Yes, yes, the Class Act, and it was a uh, it was a, a fatally flawed program. And one of the interesting things about it is that it was fatally flawed, not because people made mistakes or people didn't understand the problem or the uh, design of the program. It was designed to conform to the, the, the political realities. And it eventually collapsed. It, it crashed and burned. The Obama administration chose not to implement it. It was eventually repealed, but not before. Not before it actually helped facilitate passage of the Affordable Care Act, because the way that uh, CBO scores these things, you know, they, they, they have like a, this 10-year window. And, and there are good reasons for that 10-year window, but the, the system can be gamed. And, and that's kind of what happened with the Class Act and the Affordable Care Act and the way the Class Act was structured for that first 10 years. When CBO looks at it, it looks like a big moneymaker. You know, on year 11, it, it, totally, uh, it totally crashes and burns and becomes this huge resource suck. But in the 10-year window, it looks good. And that is one of the reasons why it was so attractive to supporters of health reform is because, not necessarily because they were committed to that program, but because it brought all these savings that could then be credited to the Affordable Care Act, right? So it, it was kind of this fascinating story, both about long-term care and about the Affordable Care Act, also about budgeting and the role of the Congressional Budget Office. And it was something that I kind of stumbled on. I, I went into the program very interested in long-term care, and this was, this was kind of the big thing at the time. And um, li little did I know until I really started digging into it that it was a fascinating story, I think, that illuminates all kinds of things, not just about health policy, but about the way Washington works and the policy process and the budgeting process. I found that aspect of your scholarship interesting because at about the same time that the health care process was getting going on the Obama administration side, I was working to some extent in Republican politics. And there actually were some of the, the saner members of the Republican caucus who did raise the same objection that Democrats were actually gaming the budgeting process through the Class Act and some other related devices. But that critique found no traction at all within at least the House Republican caucus. And instead, it was this wild blathering call that this was socialism and would portend the end of American capitalism. And that was what it turned out uh, as really it was the early indication that the Republican Party had lost interest in governing because there was absolutely no attempt to address some of these serious issues like the Class Act and no attempt at all to even think about what an alternative Republican attempt to address the healthcare problem would look like. 
so anyway, just kind of interesting overlap in that sense. Absolutely, Jeff. The um, you know, you know the dynamic on on the Democratic side, I think, was also really interesting. Um, and maybe just just a quick word about that. But you know, long term care has always kind of been one of these second tier policy areas within the the, the broader world of of health politics and health policy. And uh, coming out of the Clinton reform effort, which of course was a was a huge failure, there had been a long-term care component to that package. And some of the people in the health policy world, which, which leans pretty heavily in a democratic direction, I, I, I would say, you know, they came out of that Clinton experience thinking that long-term care was a significant part of the problem about why that package went down. And so for a long time, you had these, uh, the, the split within democratic health policy circles. You know, some people thought long-term care was really important, but a lot of people looked at it as something that was dangerous, something that could bring down any big reform effort. And so they kind of wanted to keep it at arm's length, right? It was something they were worried about, scared about, not, not because they didn't understand the issue and the challenge, but because it seemed really difficult to solve. There was no easy answer. And it, it, it had the potential to drag down this thing that they thought was much more important, which was extending basic health insurance to as many people as possible. And, and so, you know, I, I, was, I talked to a lot of the people who designed the program, the, the, the class act, and they would emphasize like, look, we were dealing with these big constraints. We had to come up with a program that uh, was going to be politically viable. The unfortunate thing, certainly for them and their program, is that to get something that was politically viable, you had to have a policy that was fundamentally flawed. But it's also kind of an amazing story about how they how they got this thing through, and it did crash and burn there at the end, but um, it did, in a way, help facilitate passage of the larger Obamacare package. So how did you come to your interest in the Never Trumpers and your collaboration with Steve Tellis? Yeah, well, so... You know the, the 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 healthcare book on the Class Act that was largely based on interviews. You know, I I, I spent a lot of time in Washington talking to uh, talking to people on the Hill, mostly mostly staffers, um, but also people in the advocacy groups and and all of this. And so I'd had this experience doing a lot of interviews. I liked that. I I, I felt like uh, I was pretty good at it. it. It's kind of a labor intensive thing, but I think it also offered certain insights that you you just simply could not get without getting out there and uh, and, and and talking with people who who, who were at the center of uh, this kind of thing I I had that kind of background I'd also and, and that was how Steve and I um, did I mean that was the, the 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 basis of the never Trump book I'd also you know long been interested in political parties dating back to kind of my my interest at the, at the intersection of political philosophy and, and American politics, this, this kind of understanding of political parties that was very much, um, I think, something I picked up at, at uh, UVA, particularly with uh, Jim Caesar and Sid Milkis. But the, 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 this idea that political parties are this uh, really essential feature of liberal democracy and that you need these institutions to kind of channel democracy in positive directions. Because, you know, if you look at the history of Democracies, it's not very pretty. They're 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 prone to all kinds of instability. They tend to collapse on themselves, and so you need these institutions to uh, channel democratic currents in positive 
directions and um, prevent democracies from moving into in, in, into these kind of more demagogic directions and, and appealing to the worst impulses of the people and, 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 and all of this. And so, you know, I'd long been interested in political parties, thought they were core to American democracy. And I, I'd also, at least to, to some degree, had a, a kind of foot in um, or, or an awareness of, a knowledge of kind of conservative politics, certainly within kind of the, the intellectual higher ed slash kind of Washington policy circle areas. You know, so, so all of those things kind of for, for me coalesced, I was, I was kind of done with the Class Act book, was thinking about what a next project would be and, and was, was watching this, uh, this, the, this Trump phenomenon play out and was just fascinated with the, the way uh, his candidacy opened up this split within the Republican Party. And it just seemed like a, a natural to uh, spend more time doing, doing these interviews and kind of writing a, a first draft of history on this, you know, just remarkable um, upsetting of uh, American Party politics and, and the Republican Party in particular. And, you know, Steve is another UVA guy, although he was he 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 was long gone by the time I showed up in Charlottesville. But 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 we kind of moved in some of the same professional networks, and uh, he was actually the series editor for that class act book, and so we knew each other slightly. And I don't know when I, I think something had been written about the class act book, and 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 we were in touch, and he was oh like what yeah you know what what are you thinking about for your next project? And and I said well I'm actually thinking about doing a book on the never Trumpers and, you know, kind of based on elite level interviews, this kind of thing. And, and, and Steve says, Oh, I know a lot about that. Would you be interested in doing it together? And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later I was on the, the, the first of, of many flights back to Washington DC and, and we set off doing our first round of interviews. How would you describe your own personal position and affinities on politics and whatnot? I, I assume you mean, you know, sure. I've always, uh, you know, Kind of thought of myself as as, as something of a, a, a moderate. I, I've, I've never really fully identified as as a as, as a partisan, which does uh, cause me some in, internal grief because um, one one of the one of the things I as I was talking about earlier. I mean, I think parties are an essential feature of um, of liberal democracy and particularly American democracy, and, and that. You know, for the most part, they've they, they've had a very positive influence, and that that you know partisanship is is uh, often a, a good thing, and it, it's a, it's a helpful thing, and 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 yet none nonetheless, I've always kind of been some somewhat reluctant, at least, to uh, throw throw in with 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 either party, and you know, I've always though been been attracted to you know some of the you know you know kind of the the, the DLC wing. Of the old Democratic Party towards uh, some of the more more moderate, for lack of a better word, elements of of the Republican Party. Much of that has been upended recently. But you know, I've always, I mean, I mean, to 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 the extent I've considered myself a, a, a partisan in, in in any sense, it, it's almost been more of a, a partisan of the American political system and of the two party system. I've typically found myself defending these things. And part of that, in my mind, at least entails having two healthy parties. And so, you know, that, that kind of comes at it from a, from a very kind of detached academic perspective, but it's, but it, but it's one that's, uh, 
that it suited me well and and, and has felt comfortable. But um, but but again, things are things are changing, and, and some of that isn't as easy to uh, necessarily subscri- subscribe to uh, these days as, as as it was a number of years ago. You know, um, your book, in some sense, represents uh, a building upon some of my work on the decline of the moderate wing of the Republican Party, uh, which I wrote about in Rule and Ruin. There wasn't much of a moderate wing by the time that book came out in 2012. Uh, There became even less of it as time went on. But, you know, the party still seemed capable of some degree of governing, uh, some degree even of self-assessment, because the uh, autopsy report so-called, came out of the RNC in 2013 after Mitt Romney's loss to Barack Obama in the previous year's presidential election. And the Never Trump movement was not exactly a moderate Republican movement, and I'm not even sure what the word moderate means these days, I have to confess. But it did seem to be interested in the vital center of coming together to discuss great national issues, problems, and hash out some potential solutions. And, and I think for that reason, I was okay with the label moderate being applied, at least to certain segments of it. Uh, you and I are talking now on the day when Liz Cheney may be deposed from her position as a House conference chair. By the time this podcast comes out, I'm sure that'll be a done deal one way or another. Uh, you know, I would never describe Liz Cheney as a moderate, but she does sort of link back to an older tradition of Republican politics that was interested in governing, that did have principles, uh, that believed in such things as objective truth. And that, you know, dealt with the moderate faction of the Republican Party to the extent that it existed. You've been on a lot of programs like Charlie Sykes's Bulwark podcast, for example, to talk about your book. Um, how do you look back on the book in hindsight, given everything that's happened, even since it came out last year? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the book. I, uh, I'm, I'm generally happy with uh, how it's been received. We got... Uh, we got a couple negative reviews. One of which, at least, was uh, was 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 welcome. Uh, v- Victor Davis Hanson had a uh, had, had a pretty uh, strong critique in Claremont Review of Books, but um, you know that's okay. Yeah, you know I, I feel good about it. You know, in, in looking back on it, I guess it's it's remarkable in some ways the extent to which Trump still has such a hold on the party even after his defeat. And um, uh, we're 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 in a, a new administration, and yet still, you know, as as you note, I mean, it looks like uh, Cheney, who who you're right. I think, you know, five minutes ago, nobody would have described her as as a moderate. Um, but 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 that was true, as as you suggest, Jeff, of of the the Never Trumpers in general. It wasn't really a, a moderate conservative split. You know, it was uh, it had a lot to do with character. It had uh, a lot to do with uh, violation of the norms of liberal democracy, which a lot of these people took very seriously. It also, um, and this is one of the kind of key, the key framing mechanism of the book in a lot of ways, is um, it, it had to do with these people's professional networks. It uh, it, it was a real overthrow of the uh, the, the Republican Party elite. And, you know, there, I, I guess one thing that I find encouraging, we, we kind of end the book um, with, this, with this call for a, a return to factions, which used to be very common, um, but have uh, not, not been a, a prominent feature of American parties now for, uh, for, for a couple decades. Um, and, you know, our kind of hope was that there would be kind of a, a faction, a space to create a faction within the Republican Party 
that would include a lot of the people who were involved with uh, Never Trump. And, and, you, and, you know, I think you can kind of see a little bit of that. Certainly Cheney is embodying that. Adam Kinzinger, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, Mitt Romney, who, you know, speaking of recent events, just got uh, booed and heckled that, uh, at the Utah uh, Republican meeting um, several days ago. And narrowly avoided getting censured. Right, right. And, um, you know, Cindy McCain, uh, you know, has, has said things like, well, I'm, I'm not leaving the party. And so, but it, it, it certainly is not the case. I mean, looking at the Republican Party today that, you know, there's this burgeoning uh, never Trump wing of the party. There, there, are a few, there are a few holdouts. And, you know, maybe with time, there will still be some space um, to create a wing of the party um, along the lines of, I think, what uh, Cheney and, and Romney and Kinzinger uh, would, would like and are speaking to, but, um, but that's quite clearly, you know, not, not, where, not where the action is right now. I do consider your book on Never Trump to be a, a real modern classic, particularly since you were writing about contemporary politics, uh, and yet your judgments have stood up so well. I'm curious to know what the division of labor was between you and Steve, and whether you had any kind of differing perspectives when it came to the whole Never Trump phenomenon. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in terms of just the basic division of labor, you, you know, Steve has that great book on the conservative legal movement. And so, yeah, you know, as I as I mentioned before, we kind of organize the book around these professional groupings, and so we have um, uh, one chapter on lawyers, and Steve Steve took the lead on that. We have a chapter on economists. Steve took the lead on that. I took the lead on. Uh, we we have two chapters on the foreign policy experts, national security types, which which in a lot of ways constituted the the real. The real center, the, the most hardcore element within within the Never Trump world. Um, I took the lead on that, given given uh, uh, my background with the first book and everything that seemed natural. We had two chapters on um, on political operatives, the kind of like people who run campaigns and whatnot. I took the lead on those chapters, and then we had uh, a couple chapters on intellectuals. And, um, and, and Steve took the lead on that, although I, I did a bunch of stuff on, on the reformicons, which was kind of this other wing. You, you mentioned the autopsy earlier, and, and we kind of frame a lot of that around kind of there, there, there was an autopsy crowd and then this reformicon crowd. And, and so, uh, you know, that was a basic division of labor, but, but we, of course, shopped drafts around. We, we did a lot of the interviews together, not all of them, but, but we did a lot of them together. You know the, the Never Trumpers were so concentrated in Washington D.C. It was it was easy to uh, tick off a lot of boxes with a number of trips to D.C. But but Steve and I also went up to New York for uh, a couple of days and did a round of interviews up there. So so it was it was very much a, a collaborative uh, a process, I, I I think, and um, and and we worked well together. Uh, it was it was the first book I had co-authored. But it was a quite a positive experience. You, you you sometimes hear people say you know how difficult it was or, or that it, it strained the relationship or whatnot. But uh, but I I don't think that was the case with Steve and I. In terms of um, you know where we were coming from on it, I you know Steve Steve is uh, Steve is very much a, a Democrat, and so he is a partisan in, in a way that I've never really considered myself. Uh, to be, and you know, I think he he was maybe a little bit more critical of the Never Trumpers than than I was. 
and especially I think in their in their failure to see what was coming. And and Steve certainly thought they should have been more clued in to to what was happening and that something like Trump was possible. And you know I. I, I agree with that to a certain extent, but um, but but probably not quite to the degree that 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 Steve does. Although, you know, because the the Never Trumpers are so concentrated in D.C., you know, there, I think there was something of a of a of a blind spot in their understanding of what was going on within their party. And um, and part, you know, that's it, on the one hand, you can understand that if you're if you're kind of living in the Acela corridor and 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 that's your world, and you're and you're hopping from you know, AEI to the Heritage Foundation, and, and if that's your whole social network and your professional network and everything else, it's um, it's probably easy to miss some of these things going on go, going on uh, out in the country. Uh, but yeah, you know, I guess I guess that would be that would be one place where maybe Steve and I were a little bit on different pages, although you know, not not to any uh, not to any huge degree. You know, it was, it was I, I think a, a, a real positive uh, experience, certainly for me. Daniel DeSalvo came out with a book about 10 years ago uh, called Engines of Change, Party Factions in American Politics from 1868 to 2010. Uh, I think he went to UVA as well. Did you overlap with him? Absolutely. Dan, Dan is, a, is an old friend for sure. So, so yeah, we, we uh, arrived in Charlottesville at, at the same time. And like me, he was a, a student of Jim Caesar and, and Sid Milkus. And um, so, so yeah. And in fact, Cal, Cal Muniz, the, 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 the guy who I did the, uh, the, the, the piece on the rural Democrats with, he's, he just finished up at UVA. So I, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't necessarily go out looking for UVA collaborators, but um, it keeps kind of coming back to Charlottesville in some ways, but yes. Yeah, so, so, so Dan for sure is, is an old and dear friend. So you've been talking about factions for a long time then, in other words. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, we talked a lot about Dan's dissertation project and, and later book project, and I read early drafts of that. So, so, so that was very much something that that I was clued into. But I, I think it was also a very much kind of, yeah, you know, to the extent there was kind of an orienting thing at at UVA at the at the time I was there, you know, and and, and working with uh, the, the people I worked with and the people Dan worked with and. Um, Steve also studied with Jim Caesar, you, you know, the, the whole role of parties and, um, and, and their, their place in a liberal democracy was, was really kind of a, a central feature of, um, of kind of the, the, the UVA school of, of thought on these things. So, so, so yeah, ab- absolutely. Parties and, 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 and the role of factions, you know, has always been, um, it been something that I've, I've been attuned to for a long time. In my book, I didn't exactly foresee the coming of Trump, but I did think that things were going to go from bad to worse for the Republican Party. Uh, and in fact, I took as the title of my last chapter that verse from uh, Yeats about some great beast slouching toward Bethlehem to be born, uh, which seems a little prophetic at least. But what I was bothered by was the disappearance of not just the moderate factions, but factions generally from the Republican Party and its replacement with an ideological monoculture. And I think in hindsight, it seems that Trump was able to effect his hostile takeover of the Republican Party, partly because it was a monoculture, uh, that there weren't, in fact, distinct factions that could have resisted his rise. Yeah, yeah, right. You, you know, I, I think, Jeff, you, you, you look back over the course of, 
um, American history, and, and, and you see that factions have been the norm, not the anomaly. And, you know, this has always been one of the reasons why I, I think some of the, the calls for a third party kind of miss the mark. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not been the case. You know, if you look at a lot of other similarly situated countries, right, well, they have multi-party systems. And in, in, in the United States, it's not that we've lacked that desire for more than two options. It's just that we've typically expressed that not, not through third parties, um, be, because our system is, is quite hostile to third parties. It's just very difficult. And so, you know, I've just always been skeptical about the, the, the plausibility of a third party, but also just the basic critique that, oh, we only have two options. Well, uh, actually, over the course of American history, we, there, there, there have been more options on the table. They've just taken the form of these factions within the two major parties rather than a whole bunch of different separate parties. And so it, it has allowed for these outlets that I think are, are quite natural. Um, and, and, and again, that you know, other in, if we were in another country, maybe it would make sense to uh, think about starting a third party. But, but so many of our institutions just make that so incredibly difficult in the United States. Yet, you know, who knows? Uh, occasionally, parties, uh, new parties, do form. But but the last time we we had a, a, a real major player. A new player in the party space was was when the Republican Party formed in the 1850s. So 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 that should give us some pause about how plausible that route is. And and so you know yeah I think one of the things that stood out to um, to certainly Steve and I in, in in the Never Trump book was you know thinking about our our current situation in 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 the United States. I think there 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 is a demand for more than two options. Again, and, um, and and in some ways, I think you can see you can see kind of the beginnings of of, of maybe a, a return to more factionalized politics. And you know, we at least think that would be uh, really healthy for for the Republican Party, but 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 also just for 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 the health of American politics. Um, you know, factions can really create spaces for uh, working across the aisle for. Uh, all, all kinds of kind of healthy, healthy aspects of American democracy, and, and again, that kind of goes back to you know that, that that was a theme of my training. But we 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 need these institutions that channel democracy in in, in positive directions and um, kind of keep it on the rails. And uh, we we do think that factions would be one way of, um, of of doing that now. And and again, that the time is kind of right for yeah. a return to more factionalized partisan competition. Yeah, you uh, and Steve sort of adapted the conclusion of your Never Trump book into that article, The Futures Faction in National Affairs last fall, I think it was. Can you talk a little more about you know what we've lost by not having factional intra-party uh, conversations, at least within the Republican Party? Yeah, well, I think I think one of the one of the things that you know has been lost is that the role of these individual members of Congress, there's a little bit less to it. So, so much of the power has been concentrated in the hands of the leadership. And, and that creates just fewer opportunities to, lead to, to be involved in the act of legislating. You know, when, when things are hashed out in, um, in the majority leader's office and then just presented to legislators. And, you know, so, you know, one of the things I think that would be positive about a return to more factionalized competition is, is that it would create more 
space for members of Congress to be really involved in, in the act of legislating and, and perhaps make that make that a more central part of the job. I mean, right, some of these members of Congress now, they aren't even hiring staffers uh, who do policy. They, they just hire comms people. <laughs> and uh, so when, when you have more factionalized activity, and, and by that I should say, you, you know, what we have in mind are like real kind of durable institutionalized factions, right? Um, not necessarily just a group that, that calls itself comes up with a name and but 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 things that endure and so a good example of this would be kind of the, those old uh, DLC Democrats who you know had their own think tank and they had their own magazine and they had their own real institutionalized central way of identifying candidates and helping those candidates and that that meant something it was recognized in the media but also within the country and so you know, you could you could be a Democrat back in in the early '90s, say, and and, uh, and and you could say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a DLC Democrat. I'm not a I'm not a Michael Dukakis Democrat. I'm not a Ted Kennedy Democrat." And that meant something. People knew what it meant, and um, and so that distinguished them from uh, maybe the mainstream of the Democratic parties, right? So 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 that's the kind of thing that we we have in mind here. And if you had that. Then these these factions would be competing with within the party, right? They would have some shared interest, obviously, in working with other factions within the party to to like elect the president and uh, from from their party and and everything that goes along with that. But they would also be in competition with one another within the party, and this would be important in the sense that to be elected Speaker of the House or Majority Leader in the Senate. You'd, you'd have to get buy-in from these different factions, and you'd have to make some concessions to the factions, right? You, you'd have to basically give give away a little bit of your power. So it would decentralize power a little bit, and you could imagine scenarios in which, you know, a faction in the Republican Party might actually, on, on policy X, have more in common with a faction in the Democratic Party than with the other faction in the Republican Party. And so it would, it would open up, I think, some more spaces for kind of dynamic entrepreneurial policymaking and get us back to a place where there is some work in, in a bipartisan fashion. And, you know, so I, I think it, I think it, you know, not only kind of is a, is a, is a natural thing that, 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 uh, that people in a in a big diverse country like ours, you know, two just two options doesn't quite doesn't quite uh, satisfy, you know, the kind of diversity we have. But it would also just I think open up a much more healthy uh, milieu in in Congress and in Washington more more generally. That would be uh, that that would just lend itself much more to a, a kind of healthy dynamic uh, democracy. So what you're saying about the importance of faction suggests a pretty direct transition to your article about the Democrats need to regain an ability to compete in rural America. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, one of the things that strikes me is, you know, that and uh, just watching recent cycles, I mean, what we've seen in, in so much of the country is just this growing split between urban and urban America and rural America. It's really kind of become a defining feature of uh, American politics. And, you know, in that piece, um, Cal and I uh, focus on five Western states, uh, Montana, 
Idaho, Wyoming, and the Dakotas. And, you know, you can really, really see that collapse in, in, in full display in those states, you know, as recently as uh, 2008, the, the 10 Senate seats out of those five states were evenly split. And uh, now uh, the, the, the last Democrat standing is uh, John Tester from Montana. And, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things and, and why I think, you know, Democrats would do well to, to, to take their collapse in rural America more seriously than I think some of them want to do is because the, the way our institutions are set up we have a situation where these small rural states really punch above their weight, right? And so, you know, these five states that we focus on, they account for less than 2% of the total U.S. population, right? But they send 10 senators back to Washington, right? Which is 20% of the way to a Senate majority, right? If you could get all 10 of those, which Republicans are very close to doing, they're 20% of their way to the Senate majority. And that's before you even look to the 98% of, uh, of uh, the, the rest of the country's population, right? So the, the Senate is such a big player here, but um, you know, it, it, it results in a situation where uh, for Democrats, it's just very hard for them to enact their policy goals uh, when they, even when they routinely have significant national majorities, right? But because their support is so concentrated in, in urban areas, and, and we have a political system in which geographic uh, disbursement is really important. That's a real problem for, uh, for, for, for Democrats. We also uh, think, it's, think it's, again, just a problem for American democracy to have Democrats so dominant in, in some of our urban areas and Republicans just so overwhelmingly dominant in a lot of rural counties. And, um, you know, I, I guess I would also mention here our friend and colleague uh, Steve Tellus has uh, kind of a companion piece on Republicans and how they could improve their standing in in urban areas. My piece with Cal and Steve's piece on on Republicans in cities came out at uh, at roughly the same time and um, kind of take 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 their bearings and, and and their concern over you know what this means for the health of of our democracy more generally. And, and just apply it to, to uh, the, the, the two parties in these two different venues. There were a number of causes for the Democrats' underperformance in the congressional elections in 2020, in particular, the failure of the anticipated blue wave to materialize. But one of them certainly was the Democrats' collapse in rural America, which you've been talking about. And yet, aside from that one blow up within the House Democratic Conference after the election where Abigail Spamberger said, we need to never talk about or even mention the word socialism again, uh, where the defund the police movement was blamed for a lot of the Democratic losses, uh, I haven't really heard much about Democrats' ideas about how they might do better in rural America. Uh, and in fact, if anything, it seems like there's some denial about the need to do better in rural America. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think that's exactly right. A denial, or I, I think in some cases, it's also kind of a resistance to making a play for rural America. And you know, I think a lot of that has to do with when we talk about rural America in this context, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is white rural America. And, and of course, rural America is, is, more than, is more than just white people, particularly in the South, but, but, but even in these five states that, that uh, we focus on in this piece, you know, there's a significant Native American population and, 
and 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 whatnot. But but still, to to a large extent, when we're talking about this, what we're talking about are, are white rural voters, and uh, a lot of Democrats, I think, don't see that as the future of the party, and just find it far more appealing, far more exciting to try to target minorities that maybe haven't haven't voted uh, regularly in the past, and 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 that that's the future of the party, and that there's something kind of unsavory about the idea of going into rural America and, you know, the stereotypes that, 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 that brings about, uh, you know, kind of uh, nicely captured by Hillary Clinton's use of uh, the, the term deplorables. Um, but yet, you know, that, that there's something unpleasant about the idea of having to cater to these people. And so I think that's a big piece of it, but, but yeah, I think, you know, there, there are different responses from Democrats. I mean, I, I think to the extent it's recognized and seriously grappled with, you know, a lot of Democrats, I think, sometimes have these kind of almost too clever by half kind of easy solutions that they want to latch on to, you know, oh, we, we can just give give our candidate an image makeover and bring out some props like a cowboy hat and a bolo tie and, and shove them out on the campaign trail and and, um, and and if they look the part, then 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 there you go. That'll do it. They they also uh, kind of indulge what what I consider to be rather long shot structural changes. Like oh well, if we just eliminated the filibuster, or we can add some states and and deal with our structural problems that way. You know, I think Cal and I try try to make the case in the piece that it would it would be it would be better in a variety of ways for Democrats to try to think more seriously about what they could do in, in states that actually exist rather than trying to uh, bring in other states. And, you know, all of these things, I think even, even if you were able to do some of them would be, wouldn't be quite the silver bullet that a lot of Democrats think and assume uh, that, that some of those structural changes would be, but it's also, um, it's also just not in the cards right now, best I can tell, right? Joe Manchin is uh, is a big supporter of the filibuster. He doesn't like the idea of uh, District of Columbia becoming a state. And, you know, this is very frustrating to a lot of Democrats that Joe Manchin is, is not on the right page. But, um, you know, the reality is if Joe Manchin wasn't in that seat, it would uh, almost certainly be a Trumpy Republican. So, you know, we kind of think that, yeah, you know the work that the Democratic Party has to do to become more competitive in rural America. It's um, it's it's kind of the long, hard slog, and uh, it, it it does run counter to I think where a lot of the energy in the department or in the uh, in, in the party is. But if they, but again, I think if they want to be serious about enacting their agenda, you 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 cannot you cannot be hemorrhaging votes in rural America the way they have recently. You've got to make some play. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be the case that they, they have to be winning these, winning these rural counties, right? But just losing them by, by a somewhat narrower margin would help. I mean, would help tremendously. And it wouldn't just be in, in kind of the rural states we look at, you know, the Montanas and the Idahos, but, you know, think about states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and, and uh, Michigan and Minnesota, you know, if if the Democrats would do a little bit better in those rural counties, they would be able to then, you know, let their strength in, in urban areas uh, really, really carry the day. And I mean, they, they'd have something close to a, a lock on the Electoral College if they could just uh, uh, stop the bleeding in some of these rural parts of those states. 
Uh, you point out that one of the factors that's making life much more difficult for Democratic candidates in rural areas and states uh, is the nationalization of American politics. And yet, you know, that's also part of the reason why it would be really difficult for them to break out of this situation. Because, you know, with so much of the energy in the Democratic Party, as it seems to me, being with the progressive faction, they really don't want to give latitude to dissident positions in uh, rural states or areas on issues like guns or abortion. So how, how would you actually uh, break out of this nationalization of politics that you describe? Well, you're right, Jeff. And I mean, I mean, to be to be honest with you, I don't I don't know that the situation is salvageable for for Democrats in in rural areas. I mean, you know, the, it, it, it's it's very much cutting against the grain. And, you know, one thing that I, I reflect on a lot, you know, grow, having grown up in Idaho when, when I was a kid, I was too young to remember Frank Church, but he was he was a he was still a significant figure in the Idaho that I grew up in, and his wife was still alive and, and very much uh, a significant figure in her own right in in, in Boise and and uh, in the Boise of my youth. Um, but Cecil Andrus was was still around. He was this uh, four term governor, and sandwiched in between, he was Interior Secretary for Jimmy Carter. Well, he left office, I believe, in ninety five, and what happened then? is that the bottom just totally fell out for Democrats in, in Idaho. And I think you can kind of see that in a lot of, in a lot of these uh, smaller rural states, certainly like in, in South Dakota, you, you, you see these, these, uh, these individuals who have their own kind of iconic brand that allows them to still win um, sometimes, sometimes pretty damn narrowly, but they can hold on longer than just and, and, and kind of obscure the natural partisan dynamic. And I think that's what happened when when Cecil Andrus left. You know, the, the bottom fell out for Democrats, and it, it wasn't obvious at the time. That's the thing. But if but 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 looking back, it becomes very clear. You, you know, when Andrus left, that was that was the end uh, for for Democrats in in Idaho, and um, and so you know. Like in, in Montana, I think I think you know I wonder about that a lot, and so I'm I'm and I'm not sure that once you know you have people like Max Baucus and you know John Tester, whenever he uh, steps down and things just revert to a kind of normal Democratic candidate versus a, Demo a Republican candidate, you know, the typical norm is that, is that it's a Republican blowout. So you know I'm I'm not entirely sure that it is salvageable, but if it is to be salvaged for Democrats in some of these areas. I mean, I think you've you've got to kind of take a two pronged approach, and this is what Cal and I lay out in that paper. On the on the one hand, you you gotta you gotta be uh, defensive and and have have the latitude within the party to be defensive and to to be able to rebrand yourself a little bit on some of the real hot button issues, like uh, in particular the Second Amendment and abortion. You know the 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 cultural salience of those two issues is, is just hard to overemphasize, and that kind of thing is very difficult because, of course, you know, for a Democrat to rebrand on Second Amendment or or abortion, even in a even in a rather modest way, you know, to to go back and adopt the old Bill Clinton language on abortion of safe, legal, and rare. Well, that's really not where the the, the base of the party is at. And so, you know, in doing some of those things, you're you're really kind of running into uh, 
some 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 resistance inside the party. So so that's difficult. But I I, I also just don't see any way around some of that to kind of yeah and and you know you're you're never going to outgun the Republicans on Second Amendment issues, but you could blunt it a little bit and take away a little bit of, of, of the power of just you know being being condemned as uh you know some some uh, you know, hostile opponent of the second amendment so 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 those are difficult but 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 necessary um and it and it wasn't that long ago that uh that the democrats did encourage candidates running in some of these rural districts to take stances that fit their districts right we've i, I think we've we've lost some of that in more recent cycles but it wasn't that long ago the other thing is a more offensive strategy, and, and the and, and the good news here for Democrats is that it's much easier. And and what we have in mind on this front is to to uh, kind of try to find some ways to creatively localize their campaigns and their appeals and their brands. And so by this we we mean finding some of those issues that don't map on to national politics that don't fit neatly into our national partisan cleavages because because when that happens i i just don't think the democrats have have much of a chance at all and for that matter republicans in urban areas don't have much of a chance at all if the only considerations that people have in their mind when they're assessing these candidates you know falls in line with the national politics and is just an extension of you know tucker carlson's show and rachel maddow's show right so so you have to find some way around that and, um, and again, for us, that involves kind of identifying some things that matter locally on the ground, but that aren't synonymous with, um, with, with the big national disputes. And so, for example, I think for a long time, Democrats in the West used public lands as this kind of an issue. And, and, we're, and we're, we're very adept at painting themselves as defenders of public lands and um, uh, demeaning Republicans as opponents of public lands, right? Well, public lands are are quite popular in the West, and so when when you when you raise that kind of an issue to the forefront of people's minds, that kind of blunts some of our natural tendency towards nationalization, which which you know we we see as fundamentally the the, the big problem for Democrats in, in in the West. You know, if people are just talking, as you mentioned earlier, about defund the police and and stuff like this, I mean that's that's uh, that's very bad news for Democrats in in, in rural areas, um, and so and so you got to push back against that. You know, we try to identify some potential openings for that. Um, but yeah, you know, another old kind of good example that I like. You know, there was this uh, terrible asbestos problem in the little town of Libby in northwest Montana. It, it just devastated that community, and uh, you know had to do with a mine and there was all this asbestos in the mine. It contaminated everything. Well, Max Baucus, a former senator from Montana, really made dealing with that issue uh, a focal point of his of his time in the Senate. And so, and, and and again, that's something that, you know, mattered a great deal to that community and played very well across the state. Right? I mean, he 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 helped that community um, in, in a real way. But it also was something that that ran counter to just what what people are debating um, back in Washington, and 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 again, if Democrats just in the West in, in these rural, small rural states, if, if that's the only thing people are thinking about, you know, it's game over. 
So, uh, and, and again, the good news there is that that's kind of the easy part in a way. You, you aren't going to get pushback inside the party on that, like you are on the gun stuff or the abortion stuff, right? But, but, but we basically think that's, that's your kind of two-pronged strategy. Um, play a little defense on the hot button issues. Try to, try to create some space between yourself and the national party. And then really lean into some of these local local issues, and you know I think that's actually a playbook that uh, would 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 work well for Republicans in, in certain areas too. You know that that, that are extremely um, democratic. I, I agree with you, Rob. Uh, I wonder if I could actually put on my historian hat here for a moment. Uh, you are a program director at the Mansfield Center at the University of Montana, and your center is named for Mike Mansfield and his wife. Uh, and Mike Mansfield was the longtime um, Senate Majority Leader. In fact, I think he still has the record for being the longest-serving Senate Majority Leader. Um, and you know, he's somebody who's interested me partly for what he says about the change in politics in places like Montana. He was the successor as Montana's at-large delegate in the House to Jeanette Rankin, uh, who's a, you know a, a great figure in American history. She, I think, was the first woman to be a federal official of any kind. She was a Republican pacifist who cast a vote against the U.S. entrance into the First World War and then was the only member of the House to vote against the U.S. entrance into the Second World War. Mansfield, I think, fought in that First World War. He was also a professor of political science and maybe history at the University of Montana as well. But he became uh, Montana's at-large delegate in the 40s, was there for a decade, then went to the Senate in 1953. And uh, he was an institutionalist. He was a powerful leader, but he also was somebody who believed in bipartisanship and cooperation across the aisle. If I'm remembering correctly, he used to have breakfast with Vermont's Republican Senator George Aiken every morning in the Senate. And, you know, when I look at the people you've had serving in your state recently, you know, Ryan Zinke, who was kind of an interesting guy as Montana's at-large delegate and then ran into ethical dilemmas, as did so many other people who served uh, in Trump's administration. And then uh, Greg Gianforte, who is now your governor, uh, whose probably signature act was uh, being convicted of assaulting a journalist, uh, a, a very Trumpian symbolic act. And I just kind of wonder how you got from, you know, within this one state, you know, how you got people like Mansfield and now Gianforte. I mean, it's a real change from giants to homunculi. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it sure is, Jeff. You know, Mansfield was known as the, the conscience of the Senate, had a good working relationship with his counterpart on the Republican side, Everett Dirksen, and uh, right, obviously came from a very different time, a, a time at which we did have factions, I, I, I might note, and that, you know, influenced his, his approach to his role as, as party leader and, and leader of uh, the Senate as, as a whole. But but you're right. The, the the crop of Republicans in Montana is val is is now uh, very different than it used to be, and um, there was a different re- Republican network. If you go back, you know, 20 years uh, associated with uh, maybe most notably uh, Mark Roscoe, who was a, a two-term governor and uh, a, a confidant of uh, George W. Bush, and um, in fact, apparently had an opportunity to be. Uh, Attorney General for for Bush, but uh, he, he was kind of the face of the, uh, the the public face of the Bush campaign's recount during, during the whole recount thing in, in Florida in two thousand. But uh, you know, a, a, a real uh, ethical guy, and uh, you know, there, there 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 were controversies back then too. But 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 a very different uh, 
type of Republican than what we see uh, today in Montana. In fact, uh, Roscoe has spoken out a number of times against against Trump and um, and uh, you know, but but he's he's basically a, a non-entity within the Republican Party anymore. And uh, and and all of those people from that generation and and, and of his kind of mindset. Uh, which dovetails very much with the Never Trumpers. In fact, he, you know, was was at least somewhat linked in with that, with with, with that kind of crew, and and certainly with that mindset. Um, and uh, you know, but but the Republican Party has moved in a in a different direction, and I think that that has to do with some of the things we've been talking about. I mean, one of the things that that happens when you have the the, the kind of polarization around urban and rural lines, like we do today, is that 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 fuels more polarization and negative partisanship and extremism, um, and it diminishes electoral competition. And so you have these um, incumbents now who worry more about a primary challenge from their own ideological extreme than they do about a general election matchup with the other party. And so it incentivizes uh, some of these performative theatrics that have become so common now. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, it minimizes or actually disincentivizes, I think, in, in many cases, compromise. And, you know, one of the, one of the little, you, you mentioned Gianforte's assault on, on the journalist. I mean, one of the interesting little debates among sort of Montana journalists and, and political observers is, is whether that incident, which happened, he assaulted that journalist. It was the night before a special election to replace Zinke in the House after Zinke went to be Interior Secretary about whether that uh, assault on um, Ben Jacobs helped or hurt him, right? I mean, kind of the, the assumption was that a crime like that, well, clearly that, that, that is going to do harm. But, um, you know, Gianforte, the knock on him, he'd run for governor before and lost. And the knock on him was he was kind of this effete, uh, rich carpetbagger from New Jersey, which was always a little unfair, I thought. He, he, you know, he'd been in Montana for 25 years, started his business that made him wealthy in Montana, raised his kids in Montana, all the rest. But in any event, that was his reputation. Well, then he uh, he assaults this journalist. And, um, you know, there, there, there's at least, there, I'll put it this way, there are a lot of people around Montana who think that that actually helped. And um, it made him, you know, look tough. And he was a, he was a Trump kind of guy and, um, and, and helped him overcome some of those some of those things that uh, made him culturally a little out of step with the rest of Montana. But certainly, I mean, you look at the congressional delegation um, on the Republican side, Steve Daines and uh, Matt Rosendale is the new member of Congress who replaced Gianforte when Gianforte came back to be governor. You know, these are, these are you know, definitely the type of Republicans who are Trump loyalists. They uh, were, were very much a part in uh, making the case that the election was fraudulent, all of these things. Uh, Danes was among those senators who, uh, who was uh, with Hawley and Cruz and all the rest who, who were uh, going to, uh, who said they, they were going to decertify or, or not or refuse to certify the election um, on January 6th. Uh, Steve Danes did back off that um, after the insurrection. But, but yeah, that's that's the type of, of candidate that, um, that 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 is successful in Montana now, and I, I think it you know it, it's very much a reflection of a, a polarized electorate. Can I ask about a somewhat more appealing uh, Montana politician? I'm thinking of 
Wilmot Collins, who is the mayor of uh, Helena, the right. state capital. And if I'm remembering this correctly, he's uh, a Liberian refugee. He's sort of an independent. Uh, I guess he is registered now as a Democrat and in fact ran for the Senate briefly as a Democrat, but seems to have had considerable appeal even to Trump voters. Is he in any sense following the Saldine Muniz playbook for what Democrats ought to be doing in states that are rural and like Montana? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure, Jeff. He, you're, you're right. He ran for uh, U.S. Senate briefly uh, against Danes in the last cycle before our then Governor Steve Bullock, who was making uh, a long shot bid for the presidency for a little while before he quit that and jumped into the uh, Senate race. You know, um, I'm not sure about Collins. I, I would not be surprised. We we just in, in the redistricting process after with the census and everything, we uh, we picked up our, our second uh, uh, U.S. House seat, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if, if if Collins is is looking at at running for that. Whether he fits what we have in mind, I I guess I'm not sure. I you know for a long time there's been this uh, debate. In, in Montana politics, and, and to, to a degree, it's a, the same debate that goes on in national politics about whether minority candidates, whether women can, can, can win as, as Democrats in these states. And I've, I, you know, I always thought the answer was obviously yes. Uh, Collins, you're, you're, you're right, he's, uh, he's, he's from Liberia, um, a black man. I, you know, I, after these last few years, I, I'm 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 less certain that that that, that race and and, um, and and gender aren't aren't important factors. I I don't I don't know how that would play in in the rest of uh, Montana. So I I I, I think you, you you can look at uh, some recent history and there 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 was a a woman from Butte. Who, who ran for Senate and, and didn't do very well. I, you know, it, there, we, we kind of have a small N problem here to, to use a social science term, but uh, so, so it's hard to extrapolate and draw, draw conclusions just from a handful of cases. But um, it, it, it does make me, make me wonder. I mean, so much of what Cal and I are kind of suggesting in this piece is that you've got to kind of, so many democratic candidates who run in, in, in rural areas now, I think just seem so, culturally uh, removed from these areas. You know, John Tester would kind of be an example. You know, he's a, he's a working farmer from a very rural part of the state. Um, but a lot of times what Democrats in, in some of these places do, they, you know, they look to uh, Missoula, where I'm from, or Bozeman, or Helena. And, um, you know, these are, these are what pass for urban centers in, in Montana. You know, for, for, for most of the country, they'd be they'd be considered small towns, but, but these are our urban centers. And, and in some ways they, they mimic kind of urban centers in other places, um, you know, culturally progressive and, and everything else, you know? So I don't, I don't know if, if Collins quite fits the bill. And in some ways that's unfair because it's, you know, his, uh, his, his potential liabilities on, at least in, in some respects are, are things he has no control over. You know, he's the kind of guy I think who uh, progressives in Montana love, but whether whether he would be able to win statewide office or you know one of the house seats, um, I don't know. I guess I, I I I have my doubts, which I you know 
am, am reluctant and, and somewhat saddened to to say, but I but I'm I'm afraid it might be true. You know, one of the interesting things, one of the many interesting things you pointed out in your paper, but one of the things I hadn't thought about is that part of the problem politically in Montana is the decline of local news. And not just the papers, which we've heard about, but also the television stations. And I wonder if the Democrats, you know, could benefit from just a, a revival of interest in localism and trying to shore up some of these eroded foundations that affect a lot of these communities, including their news sources. Yeah, exactly, Jeff. You know, Cal and I are actually um, thinking about doing a piece uh, specifically on that, actually, on on uh, the decline of local news. And, and I think that absolutely is um, a, a big part of the story here. You know, newspapers in, in particular, local newspapers, I mean, you know, I think everyone's fairly well acquainted with, you know, the challenges in journalism in general, but particularly in, in the newspaper business and, and, and the decline of of, of newspapers and you know where that is hit hardest, of course. You know, you know and, and some newspapers are thriving. You know, New York Times and Washington Post uh, come to mind. But um, but but where you've really seen uh, this hit hard, uh, you know, are in those rural areas, and and that just furthers this this trend towards nationalization, right? If you don't have your old kind of you know local daily paper, your local weekly paper. That just then sends you off into more nationalized areas, and it makes it it makes it very hard. Um, you know, I think in, in the case of uh, of Democrats in say Montana to do that localizing process that we talk about to to try to identify things that that take some of the attention off. Just you know, oh, is it going to be Nancy Pelosi who's speaker or uh, Kevin McCarthy? Well, if that's if that's the only thing people are thinking about, you know, we know what the result is going to be. And so, yes, I think the 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 decline in in local media is is a significant problem for Democrats in in rural areas and and for Republicans in our in our urban area in in our urban areas in our cities. You know, if if everything just comes down to a thing about well, well, which team are you on? Are are you are you Trump or anti-Trump? Um, are you with Pelosi and the squad, or uh, or or against them? Well, that that really is poisonous for for for, for Democrats in the parts of the country that we're talking about, and um, you know, and, and again, I, we just think it's it, it's it's really it, it's really an unfortunate and unhealthy thing for um, for for American democracy as a whole, right? It it it, it screws up the way our system is supposed to work when when you have everything nationalized in, in, in that way. And so quite apart from, you know, wherever your, your kind of partisan inclinations would take you on, on, on these things, there, there's also this larger thing about what, what, is, what is helpful for having a healthy, dynamic, vibrant political system. Rob, I really appreciate uh, your filling us in on the politics of big sky country and uh, all the other rural parts of the country. Uh, really appreciate your being here with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Good talking with you. Thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Ingenieri, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. Vital Center.